This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to the Law Britannia series of Mythos, where we will explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. Folklore both ancient and contemporary. What if you could unwittingly stumble into fey worlds, simply blink from existence? This is precisely what happened to a man named James Worson in a story by Ambrose Bierce, a fine 19th century writer of the weird. As the story goes, Worson made a bet that he could run the 11 miles between Leamington Spa and Coventry, and to verify the feat, two friends followed him in a wagon. And indeed, he displayed impressive endurance. Until something extraordinary happened. Suddenly, less than a dozen yards in front of Worson's friends, the runner tumbled, pitching forward as if he had tripped on something. And in full sight of his companions, he cried out in abject terror and disappeared. He did not fall onto the ground. In fact, he never made it to the ground. James Worson simply vanished, as if some invisible portal, perhaps to some fey world, to some alternate dimension had opened up and swallowed him whole. It was this story that set me on the journey of exploring fey folk stories across Britain. For while it's not directly a story about fairy people, it was the bizarre disappearance that reminded me of a key element of fey folk tales the abduction of human beings, and their entrapment in the subterranean alternate dimensions the fey folk call home. So, we will travel from the high moorlands of Northumberland, England's most northern and most sparsely populated county, to the verdant hills and wild crags of southwest Ireland, from Scotland's Orkney Islands ridden with Neolithic sites and gold-white sandstone cliffs, to a sleepy village in Suffolk. These are stories of fey folk and their fey worlds. Fairies of the Disney variety they are not, but fey folk who live in what is essentially a parallel dimension. The word fey, in fact, means otherworldly, and this, along with the Irish word she, spelled S-I-D-H-E, will be used instead of fairy. Forget wings, forget diminutive cuteness. For this has eclipsed the real fae folk and robbed us of a mythos of truly otherworldly dimensions. The fairy of the British Isles are often described as small, but can also be human-sized, and indeed many ways they are very much like us, except for their magical abilities and longevity. And what these stories represent is a fascinating worldview, that there is a world parallel to our own. Indeed, our one story from beautiful Ireland is within living memory, 
It's a story that comes from a generation of men and women who shared a common belief in fey folk and an openness to their actual existence. Some of these stories also stem from what folklorist Jenny Butler would call a fairy religion, not just a whimsical belief, but a highly developed folk belief that has its links in ancient history and mythology. This is Fey Folk and Fey Worlds. Part 1. The Changeling, Scotland The Orkney Islands, in the far north of Scotland. In a mottled grey and white stone cottage, a midwife scrambles with stiff limbs from a small wooden bowl on the table and looks for three coloured stones, magically potent and calling out for the water. Finding them, she clasps the coloured stones in her withered fist, scurries over to the bowl and whispers a holy incantation over the water. She drops the stones into the water, grabs the bull, and rushes out into the biting wind to her neighbor some distance across the field. Neighbors who have just had a baby, a baby who just might be the victim of its father's grave error. The midwife hears the new mother shouting as she approaches. You stupid man, why didn't you say it? Now the second she pushed open the door, the midwife felt the rippling, the sense of a minute tearing in the air around her, a sense of being watched. Rushing over to the red-faced days old baby, the midwife dipped her fingers into the bowl and sprinkled the forespoken water on the child. For indeed, this child had been forespoken by a very foolish drunken father. A foolish drunken father who had nearly screamed his pride who had failed to say the ritual words of protection before bellowing his good fortune out into the spirit-ridden world beyond the glowing warm hearth. Stupid indeed, for any denizen of Orkney knew that you had to first say, God save it or safe be it, before praising or admiring this beautiful new life, this may-do, freshest, dearest thing, a gurgling fair-haired child. But he hadn't, stupid man, and now, for the midwife felt it, there was a fey envy surrounding the cottage for the forespoken child. For when a child is forespoken, when it is praised before the ritual words of protection, the envious gaze of the fey folk are drawn to the beautiful human child. And oh, how the midwife felt that longing for this beautiful, healthy human child, full of lusty breath and freshly created blood. And deep down, the midwife knew it was too late. And though friends and family stood watching the small cottage, they f- though they fought to never leave the child unattended, the tearing of the veil, the lust-bulging eyes of invisible fae folk saturated the air making human minds and hearts and eyelids heavy with sleep. The night watch gave in to the fairy magic and fell fast asleep. And then the night watch awoke to screaming, not a mourning wail, but to rage. They awoke to see mother red-faced and froth-mouthed, shouting, reveal yourself directly into the face 
of the infant. The mother threatened, I will seal, sear your skin with the coal. I will dash your brain to bits. Reveal yourself, commanded the mother. At first stunned, the night watch only stood in silence. And just before they regained the good sense to stop the mother from abusing the baby, they heard it. A guttural chuckle, impish and mean. Something that would normally be the product of an elderly, dementia-laden mind, yet clearly coming from the baby. The mother collapsed onto her knees and wept. The night watch moved closer to the child. The face, wide and weathered, cross-eyed and drooling. Then, another ancient cracked chuckle. You didn't need fairy ointment for the eyes to see the truth. The human baby had been abducted, hidden away in a realm parallel to yet utterly distant from our own world. And in its place, a hideous fairy child. The night watch left in defeat and shame. And no one went near the cottage for many days. No one heard the tiny footsteps and huffing wolf nostril breathing in the darkness of the night. Nor did they hear the mother screaming for her husband to get the beast off her bleeding breast. No one heard the infant screech with animal lust and manly bass. No one saw the glowing coals or the burns. What they did see when their guilt propelled them to pay a visit was mother standing over a tiny grave. For the impish fey child never did confess its identity and was found dead that very morning. And the mother eventually went mad, feeling just inches from her and yet miles away the presence of her own dear child, feeling only a thin veil and yet an eons-thick barrier between her and the little one she had created within her very own self. Part 2. The Green Children of Woolpit, England In the year of our Lord, 1210, According to chronicler Ralph of Coggeshall, abbot of the Cistercian Monastery of Coggeshall, there occurred an event like no other, a bizarre tale that, in the words of the chronicler, was in living memory. It was a true inverse of the human and fairyland tale, and so puzzling, so other than is the story, that it feels like the sort of tale that would, quite simply, be very difficult to just make up. Fay, indeed, were the lost boy and girl who are found in the village of Woolpit, both afraid and bewildered as they lingered near one of the wolf trapping pits for which the village is named. Fay indeed, was their strangely green-colored skin, their unintelligible language, and their obvious blindness at, at normal sunlight. Once found by the villagers, the frightened and bewildered children were taken to the stately home of Sir Richard de Colne. But assimilation to normal life proved very difficult. Mourning their loss and continually in floods of tears, they refused any food given to them, except eventually beans, and these they ate only when shown how to get them out of the pod. The little boy withered slowly, eating little. With all the life and buoyancy of youth fading, he soon died. 
The girl remained strong and lively, her green color fading. Over time, she learned English and told a most extraordinary tale about her land of origin. An elaborated monologue of her account might have gone something like this. This bright and oppressive light you call the sun, this doesn't exist in my land, my land of mother gentle perpetual twilight. The closest that you have is that boundary moment between night and day, what you call twilight, when the sky above is a beautiful mixture of periwinkle blue and star milk. Twilight is the constant state of my land, and mother gentle Pisa constant caress of lullabies. The major difference is this. The star milk is mixed with evergreen and moss. A green glow, a verdant glow, is always in my land as if there were tiny universes within all the leaves and grass, moons and stars glowing out from the green canopy of my land. My brother and I lived there with many others whose skin was like algae and moss mingled with the beautiful bright green of sun glow through lime tree leaves. Yet we always sensed you. Beyond the great river where we could see a great luminous country, and that shining, the shining of your world, put seeds of desires in our hearts, and perhaps one day we would visit this country. Something rustling and whispering and cunning and unseen perhaps heard the silent longing of our hearts, for as we followed our sheep along the river, we heard a strange tinkling of bells. Lulled and driven, we followed that strange sound of tinkling bells to its source, a great cavern, all ink-black crevices and plutonian breath. We had always been warned that such rocky openings were gaping moths waiting to swallow us into the other world, into a world that would make us wither and become ghosts. But something rustling and whispering and cunning and unseen whispered to us in the tinkling of the bells, and we entered. I don't remember walking or there being any openings. All I remember is my brother suddenly dropping to the ground and crying out in pain. I did the same, for a burning brightness hit us so suddenly and so ferociously that it felt as if some fire beast had pounced upon us. We lay on the ground and wept in terror, for how long I cannot say. Every so often, I would crack open my tightly shut eyes, only for a yellow-white burst of heat and light to scald them. What land had we stumbled into? Would we lay like this forever paralyzed by this beast light, this devouring light that now I know you call the sun? I tell you this because I do not want to entirely forget the land of my birth, the realm of perpetual mother gentle twilight, and fey people whose blood and skin were fed by the riotous green of an untouched land. And if I forget entirely, I know something in me will die. I will not forget.
the she and their world. Put aside the word fairy and the whimsy and enchantment it conjures, an association popularized by Spencer. Instead, let's approach the she, which is the Gaelic term for fairy, as something else entirely. The she are truly fae, otherworldly subterranean denizens of grass-covered mounds found in countryside and village. The she could be the remnants of Celtic nature spirits, powerful beings whose blood and life force was wind and growth and water, and all the tumultuous yet sustaining forces of nature that we must negotiate and harness to survive. Elementals, I suppose you could say. The most interesting story, however, is the origin story that links them to an ancestral source that is a foundation myth for the Irish people, the Tuatha de Danann. The Tuatha de Danann dwelt peacefully and with self-sovereignty in ancient Ireland, and historically, they did exist. That is, until the Milesians came, saw, and conquered. The weeping, mourning, and thoroughly degraded Tuatha de Danann, according to legend then, were conquered and driven underground, thus forming a sort of fundamental socio-spiritual structure of Irish society for humans are the descendants of the conquering Milesians, and the she, the fey folk, are the descendants of the Tuatha de Danann, a conquered people. A conquered people unseen, fey, and even of doubtful existence, truly and utterly vanquished. And like any conquered nation, the usurpers fear discussing them. This only reminds humans of their precarious dominance, and that alongside them, exist parallel worlds of beings that have wills and desires in their own covert magical power. So the word she is taboo, unlucky and not to be uttered. Instead, humans appeased them, tried to maintain the status quo by calling them the Nadina Maho, the good people, or the Nadina Ushla, the noble people. And the dwellings of the fey folk, hawthorn trees and mounds, boulders and caves, are to be avoided. Even the fey paths connecting the haunts of the she are meant to be treated with delicate respect. One must avoid littering or loud voices. Why? Because humans can be dragged away into the fey realms, into the other world, never to return to human society, and more than likely to act as a nursemaid or a midwife to a she child and to be carried away or even swept away by the dread whirlwind called Shigreha means slavery to a world devoid of your own personal history, a world devoid of family ties and memories, a world in which you would be an alien, and eventually when you inevitably have to eat the fairy food, you are bound and slave to a world that is not your own, to an alien race that is not your own, a subterranean race of a strange and conquered folk. And perhaps those missing person stories, so terrifying in their ability to make our own vulnerability so very real, are actually captured human stories, the guerrilla tactics of a conquered race. Story 4. 
Rohanan Castle, and Elizabeth Shia. An Irishman named John Malone begins his true story, as it involved his stepbrother, James Cavain, and his wife Elizabeth, with that precarious moment when Elizabeth was giving birth in a southwest Munster village near the fairy mount called Rohanan Castle. Not an actual brick-and-mortar castle, but a strange, grass-covered mound said to be the haunt of the sheep. Precarious, indeed, is the raw, tearing moment of birth. The veil between worlds is thin, and mother and child both are vulnerable to supernatural forces. It's no wonder, then, that as Elizabeth groaned and labored to thrust her child into the weeping world, that, mysteriously, the bed caught on fire. In that hectic moment, her mother sprung up to put out the blaze and caught sight of something very eerie cat with a man's face. Of course, the mother became distracted by the more immediate problem of the fire, and after it was put out, saw no trace of the cat. From there, the fate of the child and its mother seemed touched, tainted by something fey and weird. For the child died soon after, and its mother ended up with a terrible pain in her foot. More than that, the foot became so swollen that it looked more like an elephant foot than a human foot, and needed one yard or more of bandage to wrap once around the swelling. And the skin looked like, well, with its brittle quality, as if wart-like viruses had eaten away at the skin, causing rough valleys and a porous mottled quality. Well, it looked like tree bark, and yet... There was something else, something in the turns of phrase, in the facial expressions, in the very feeling of this woman that made Elizabeth's mother uneasy. This feeling remained when Elizabeth died soon after, and her body was so swollen that she needed a coffin as wide as it was long. It was as if Elizabeth wasn't there at all. It was as if this corpse, this woman, wasn't actually Elizabeth. And in fact, it wasn't. For on that same night that the man-cat appeared, Elizabeth was carried away by the she to the fey fort, Rohanan Castle, where she became captive nursemaid to a young child, a fey child who are known to be beastly ugly when infants. And it was this that Elizabeth had to put to her breast. No wonder then that she appeared to whoever would see and hear and plead for help in escaping the other world of weird twilight and fey folk. The first appearance of Elizabeth She was a year after the funeral when a stranger approached a friend of Elizabeth She, a man named Pat Mahoney, and said, I have a message for you to the parents of that woman, Elizabeth She. She is coming to my house for the last nine months, always after sunset, and she is eating the potatoes and drinking the milk belonging to the servants. Let us pause from the original recorded tale for a moment and consider Elizabeth's state. One can see her eating with a desperate relish, famished from avoiding the she's food. Elizabeth is full-bodied and yet insubstantial, as if her being was partially subsumed into a world beyond the veil. She is near enough to feel and know and smell 
all that it is to be human, but so distant that an interminable emptiness seems to exist between her and the world of her birth. This can be felt in Elizabeth's final words to Pat Mahoney. I have not tasted food in the fort yet, but at the end of seven years I'll be forced to eat and drink unless somebody saves me. I cannot escape unassisted. What she really means is she must be saved by people who love her enough to risk an encounter with the she. For who knows? They too could become captives, lonely amongst strangers and always partially existing in the empty spaces between worlds. Now, keeping in mind the terror of being caught in the other world, Pat Mahoney reports this to Elizabeth's friends, and at first there seems to be hope. Elizabeth's father, brother, and other friends volunteer to go retrieve her. But not her husband, who is already remarried. Elizabeth has been forgotten and replaced. So, just as her kin and friends are about to set off, a local priest intervenes, reminds them of their own risk of blindness, of fairy strokes, and even entrapment, and eventually persuades them not to go. Of course, one would have thought that a girl's father would go to the ends of the earth for her, but such is the fear and apprehension that the she strikes into the heart of men that even a father can be persuaded to leave his daughter to her fate. Two more years go by. Elizabeth's husband and his new wife go about their business, and the village life continues, with Elizabeth's memory already fading. But it does not fade entirely, for she then appears to a retired policeman, Bat O'Connor, and pleads with him, with all the tears and sorrow of one who is insubstantial and existing in the other world. She pleads with him to tell her friends that she can still be saved, that she hasn't eaten any fairy food. Now O'Connor finds these friends and is about to relay all, when the family of the second wife seals their own fate by bribing him to say nothing more. Because how awkward would it be if the first wife suddenly showed up on the doorstep? Why, they'd be the laughing stock of the village. So, the seven years passed. A long time for a human captive, who now knows they will always dwell as an alien in the other world, the she-world. A very long time to harbor anger and vengeful feelings and to learn the fey tricks that can make humans suffer. First, she appeared to her father, who was coming home from market, perhaps trying to forget this regret as he passed the she-fort. She appeared, but did not speak, did not speak for an entire mile as she walked by his side. Perhaps she couldn't. Perhaps her permanent residence in fey worlds rendered her incapable of human speech. Or perhaps she wanted him, her father, to feel her anger, the resentment and the abandoned rage in her silence. Whatever the reason, she remained silent, a terrible, empty silence. Then, before departing him, she blew into his face. Something she had learned from the conquered she and their covert magical ways. And the next day, her father, who had abandoned her, was blinded. 
and remained blinded for seven or eight years. In fact, he remained in bed until the day he died. Shortly thereafter, Elizabeth's father's second wife became so ill that for 20 years she remained incapacitated. She could not milk a cow or sweep the house. She could not go to mass or market. And to end the story, in the poignant words of storyteller John Malone, she keeps the bed now and will keep it while she lives. She has no pain and is not suffering in any way, but is dead in herself, as it were. Hello everyone, Nicole Schmidt here. First, I would like to thank Eva P. Vavarska, Aaron Bloxage, Murad Margoom, Caitlin Abdel-Velasquez, Lois Cordelia, Robert Slade, Catherine Heck, Janine, Carl Sack, Judah Mayo, Heather Anderson, Ruth Roberts, and Stephen Alexander for becoming monthly patrons. The narrative approach of Mythos takes hours of careful research and script writing, so I've taken the plunge to reduce my hours at work to dedicate more time. To supplement my income, to increase the amount of time I could spend on the podcast, and ultimately to make the project sustainable for the long term, I've started a Patreon campaign, which is an online platform on which artists can receive monthly financial support from patrons. And if you can be a monthly patron, even for as little as $2 a month, please do so. Rewards for $5 and $10 a month patrons include special access to information episodes discussing the research behind the stories and even ebooks of my show scripts. Simply go to Patreon, type Mythos Podcast into the search engine, and pledge what you can. The link will also be on my webpage at www.mythospodcast.com. In fact, if you could be one of the, let's say, 500 listeners who pledges support in the top two tiers of 5 or $10 a month, I could do this full-time, putting out bi-weekly episodes, special patrons-only content, and could even start planning live shows. We've got a very big and fascinating world to travel together in this podcast, and I want to explore folkloric realms with you for years to come. In fact, the first 20 of my mythic travelers who makes a monthly pledge even for as little as $2 a month, we'll get a thank you postcard in the mail. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode.